This morning, we are up to chapter 10 in the story, I think, is where we're supposed to be. If it's not, that's what I'm going to talk about, so <laughs> maybe they're a week ahead or a week behind, I don't know. So uh, I'm not, apparently I'm not as good at being unprepared and unqualified. Uh, no, I, yes, we've changed that. Yes, yes. Becca has told me what to do today, so we are, we're going we're to do that. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, I've got the order of service. It's handwritten change here. So, so anyway, uh, so my assignment, I guess, today is uh, 1 Samuel, chapters 1 through 4, 8 to 13, and then 15 is where I'm going to be, be referring to today, and the chapter title in our our book, the story, is called Standing Tall and Falling Hard. So to open, this book of Samuel that we have, um, it's, it's, originally was one book, right, it's just just Samuel in the ancient Hebrew, and then when the translation, the the translation into Greek occurred in the, around uh, two or three hundred BC, they call it the Septuagint because 70 or 72 uh, Jewish scholars translated the original Hebrew into Greek, and it turns out that Greek actually is longer than Hebrew, so they could only fit part of the book on a scroll. So now they've got two books. No, no reason other than that, no reason for us to be concerned. There was no editorializing or changing of it. Uh, it was just a matter of practicality. They couldn't fit it all onto a scroll. So now we have first and second Samuel. Now the events take place about 1100 to 1000 BC. Covers a little bit more than a hundred year period, the, the whole book of Samuel. And then we don't really know who the author is. Many scholars think that it is partly Samuel, maybe Nathan, possibly Gad, but there is no, the book doesn't tell us, so we don't have that authority to rely on. So uh, it's sort of an anonymous book, probably written around 960 or so. You know, a little bit after, after the time period. And uh, one of the things we can rely upon is that the apostles used this First uh, and Second Samuel as, as their reference so we can have confidence in the book. All right, at the time, right, Samuel is coming at the end of the Judges period. Uh, judges, then Ruth, and now Samuel. And Samuel is the last sort of of the judges that is called by God in these troubled times uh, that the Israelites are facing. There's no real overarching power. Uh, you know, there's the Philistines, the Egyptians have kind of faded away, the, all the different words, and I'll never remember them all, the Amalekites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Nobody's really taking control and is, is sort of oppressing the Israelites, but, but they're in troubled times because they've got a number of different powers and are all sort of competing, sort of fighting with Israel at the time. So when I started to prepare for this, I, I read over 1 Samuel and I, I thought to myself, there's a lot here. It, it seemed, it's, a, it's an interesting book to me because it's not, it's not strictly historical like we find some of the other books. I, and I love history. I love Acts, right? A historical account. Uh, it's, got a, it's got a birth narrative in there of, of Samuel. There's a miracle. There's judgment. There's prophecy. There are historical accounts of the battles that, that Israel fought at the time. There's some court intrigue. 
You know, the original Game of Thrones is, is in our, our Bible. There's prophecy in there. There's some speeches, dreams. So it's kind of all over the place. And, you know, to be honest, I had a, sort of a difficult time in trying to narrow down exactly, you know, what the message of this, this, these chapters that I'm trying to, to dig into, what the message was actually going to be. And, you know, I talked to Nathan about it, and he's, he's got one thing, and, yeah, that, that, that's going to work. Uh, and then my, my beautiful wife, Jen, whose birthday was yesterday, and she took a trip to Florida for her birthday. That was, that was amazing. She mentioned something else. I said, yeah, that could work. But I couldn't get it all together. So today, if this message kind of seems disjointed, that's why. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know what to say, really, except let's kind of follow through the story and see where maybe we can gain some insight or maybe, maybe connect it to our own situation or our own lives or what's going on today. Maybe. So chapters 1 through 4, we have the birth of Samuel. We have Hannah's prayer. We have God's call on Samuel in the middle of the night. The capture of the ark of God and the death of Eli. We have all of that going on in just chapters 1 through 4. And then chapters 8 to 13, we see Israel. Now they're asking for a king, an earthly king. They already have a king but now they want an earthly king just like everybody else. Saul is chosen to be that king. He gets anointed. Samuel gives a farewell speech. He's going to uh, go off into the, to the background. And then chapter 15, we have God rejecting Saul. So that's kind of what is happening all along as we talk about this first book of Samuel this morning. Chapter 1 starts right off telling us about this man called Elkanah, I think. Not sure if that's the right pronunciation, so I'm going to refer to him from now on as either Samuel's dad or Hannah's husband. <laughs> right now, And he's got two wives, and one of them is Hannah. And Hannah is barren. She can't have children. Now, if you follow your Bible and you know your Bible, you know that when we see a woman who can't have children, you know something big is coming. Right? We, so we see that in, in, in Sarah and Abraham. We see that here with Samuel. And then Elizabeth in the New Testament. John the Baptist is, is going to be the result of that. So it should be a key to us right away. And I think there may be one more. Samson? Was Samson's mother? Yeah, yeah, okay. So anyway, where was I? Samson. No, Samuel. All right. So we see, so we see there's, there's a woman who can't have a child, and we know something's coming, and what's that going to be? Well, it's going to be Samuel. And I think sometimes we sort of skip over that. And it's hard for us to place ourselves in the position where Hannah would be, and we see her desperation in the Bible, but I'm not sure we relate to it. Today, a woman cannot have a child and be just fine, right? But back then, not being able to have a child for a woman was really the worst of the worst place to be. We see God using people at their most desperate over and over and over again. We see it today, and we see it throughout the Bible. And Hannah's here, she, Really, without children, you can, and in, even in the story, she's, she sort of has a rival with the, of, um, 
Elkanah's other wife. Like she's always sort of giving her a hard time. And society-wise, if, if her husband is to turn away from her, she's really sort of on her own with no prospects. So she's desperate. And in, and in verse 1, chapter 10 and 11, we can see her desperation. She says, In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Have we ever been that desperate that we've prayed to the Lord weeping bitterly? And, and she's so desperate that she makes a vow, chapter, or verse 11. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, the first thing I notice is, look, how desperate you must be to say, God, please give me a son, and then I'm going to hand him over. Can you imagine that? Being that desperate to make that sort of vow to God? The second thing, it's sort of, I don't know, today, today we don't take Nazarite, Nazarite vows, but that's what she's saying by not his, uh, no razor will touch his hair. It's a Nazarite vow which is found in Numbers, just to go off on a tangent for just a minute. A Nazarite vow would be uh, no alcohol, no cutting of the hair, and you couldn't touch or be near a dead body, even your own family. That's, how, that's what a Nazarite, a Nazarite vow is. And if, if something happens, uh, somebody falls dead right next to you, there are some things in Numbers that you can purify yourself and continue with, the, with your vow. But usually... It's a vow that somebody takes for a short period of time, and we see Paul does that in the New Testament. Uh, but you, and we also see it for a lifetime vow, usually for after a miraculous, ver, uh, miraculous birth, Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. So this is no joke. And I wonder sometimes when we ask God for things, do we really stick to our vow? God, if you just give me this promotion say then then maybe i can give a little bit more money to church and i get the promotion but maybe i don't feel fulfill my half or hey just do this for me and i'll i'll do this for you god and maybe i do for a little while but then it wears off but we see hannah and you know what she does she does have a, a baby boy and she does turn him over to the service of the Lord for life. We see Hannah there again in verse 1, chapters 21 and 23. Eli sees her praying. Eli is the, the high priest at the time. And, and he sees her and thinks she's drunk because of the desperation that she's in. Um, he, he recognizes what's going on. Then he pronounces a blessing. Hannah becomes pregnant. And then in verses 21 and 22, again in chapter 1, or chapter, yeah, chapter 1, we see Hannah's dedication of Samuel. Verse 21, when her husband Elkanah went up with all of his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Now, Elkanah tells her, do what seems best to you, her husband told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed home and nursed her son. 
until she had weaned him. Now, you know how old Samuel must be when he's turned over. Moms and dads in the rooms, can you imagine doing that with a child just three years old? Maybe three? And say, here, take my son forever. Renouncing any claim to be their, well, of course, they're their parents, but, you know, giving up basically their rights for, so their son can serve God for his whole life. I'm not sure I could do that. Right? She does. And she, and she goes ahead in, in verse 27 and she brings him to the temple. All right. Verse 27. Where are we here? I prayed for this child and the Lord had grant, has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. That's where he is. Eli, the one who thought that she was drunk while praying, becomes essentially Samuel's guardian. And then what does she do? Hannah? Doesn't look like she's in mourning. She gives it, now of course she's, I'm sure, sad that her son is gone, but we see chapter 2, she's, she's praying. And man, I look at this, and for the sake of time, we're going to jump into the middle and just get a little snapshot, but I look at this prayer, and I'm reminded of the fact that I don't think I'm a very good prayer. You know, these eloquent words that she says, boy, I wish I could do that. You know, sometimes I kind of stumble through. And, but I see right here in, chapters, in uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, just, just listen for a second. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. Boy, I wish I could do that. I'm more like stumbling around, not really knowing what to ask. And here's Hannah. She's given her son already, and she's like, oh. It's just, it's just beautiful. And we come to verse 12 here and we meet Eli's sons. We can, when we can contrast Hannah's beautiful prayer and her dedication and her faithfulness, her desperation, we compare that to Eli's sons in verse 12 and let's see what they tell us. Eli's sons were scoundrels. Oh boy. They had no regard for the Lord. Sons of the high priest, no regard for the Lord. Would you like that to be your description? Hophni and Phinehas, they were scoundrels. Now that, that's the, the NIV translation. The King James Version says, the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. Either way, it doesn't sound good. Now, Belial translated means useless or worthless. That was the early translation. Some later translations mean, say that it means like a malevolent power. Not necessarily the devil, but something along those lines. So that's what Eli's sons were doing, and they were supposed to be the next priests in line with Eli. And again, I think we have to look at the contrast between Hannah and her desperation and her dedication and these two supposed authorities 
and what they're doing. And no matter what the translation you have is, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. In verse 17, chapter 2, this sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. They should have known better. They're, they're educated. They, they know what they're supposed to be doing, and yet they're treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Not like Hannah. Not like Hannah's husband who goes up every year to make the sacrifice. These guys are supposed to know better. Now, I don't know all the details, and I don't really know what all the sacrifice was supposed to be, but they're taking an improper part of the sacrifice for themselves. They, they're supposed to get part of the sacrifice as, as Levites, but they're taking more than they're supposed to. You just, you just can't do that. It's, it's, it's not like a, a minor human flaw like we see with the apostles where they just sometimes can't get their act together and they do the wrong thing. They're supposed to know what, they're, what the sacrifice is, and they're supposed to follow it, and they don't. And Eli, being their father, is supposed to do something. And we don't get all the details, of course. This is just a snapshot of their lives. But, but Eli talks to him about it, but he doesn't necessarily do anything about it. And so in verse 27, we see a man of God comes through, and he starts to, to confront Eli. He calls out the misconduct of his sons. And he, he makes this little note here, and I didn't you know, write down the translation to quote it directly, but he says that Eli is honoring his sons more than the Lord. Now, if you're supposed to be the high priest, and you know your sons are doing wrong by whatever it is they're doing with the sacrifice, what are you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to honor the Lord first and not your sons and not, give your, not allow your sons to continue doing that. And so something's going to happen to Eli and his family. They're going to face judgment. And this unnamed man of God says that your sons are going to both die on the same day. Guess what happens later on? They both die on the same day. Now in verse 3, we start off, we start, now we get to see Samuel a little bit here. We get to... Verse number one, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Now, I wonder, I wonder why that could be. This is pure hypothetical on my part. I've heard some people speculate this as well. But could it be that Eli and his sons aren't actually in relationship with God? And could it, could it be that God is more than willing to communicate, but they're not willing to receive? And the, the word of God is just not coming because of a reluctance on the part of Eli and his sons to be open to the word. It could be that, but in any event, it's a fact, right? We're not really hearing from God. It's rare. And so, of course, you know what God's going to do. Out of nothing, he's going to bring something. Samuel's been God's faithful servant from birth, and one day he's just about to go to sleep, and he hears a voice. And we have to remember, this isn't just a cute little Bible story that we can't relate to today. It's God calling Samuel. 
And of course, the funny part is Samuel doesn't get it right away. Three times he calls. Samuel goes running to Eli. He's been serving Eli. He's, he's a servant in the, in the, the um, oh jeez, the name is escaping me. The house of the Lord. <laughs> jeez. Okay. Becca, can you please come and finish this? All right. <laughs> so, all right, so that, that's what he does. When, when Eli calls, he goes. When something needs to be done, he does it. This is Samuel. And he does it the right way. And he hears the voice. And he runs to Eli. Eli says, ah, that's not me. Go back to bed three times. And then it takes him three. Eli, who's supposed to know better, takes him three times to realize, oh, wait a minute. If you go back next time, say, yeah, Lord, talk. And so he does. And he gets, he gets the call. And maybe not the call he wants. Right? Because what does God tell Samuel. He tells him he's going to judge the house of Eli, your mentor, the person that you serve. And, of course, what does Eli do? He knows that God has called him, he, and Eli wants to know, hey, what did God tell you? And what does Samuel have to do? Let's not skip over this part and try to put ourselves in Samuel's position. He, I don't know exactly how old he is, but he's... He's young, and his mentor, his teacher, the person who's been like his father from the day he can remember, says, tell me, doesn't ask, hey, please tell me. He says, tell me, and then he proceeds to say, if you don't, may a curse be upon you. Can you imagine treating a child like that today? You'd have CPS at your door, Right? And so Samuel has a choice to make. He's got to either stand tall and tell Eli the truth. He could massage it, or he could avoid it, or he could lie. But not Samuel. So Samuel tells him. Now the interesting thing is Eli basically says, well, it, God is in charge. And you know, I'd be like, oh, what do I have to do to get on the back's good side of the Lord and but I think Eli probably knows. He probably knows. God's judgment will come to us all. It's a test of character for Samuel. It's a test of leadership. It's a test of commitment. And he passes with flying colors. And I think we have to remember that it's not always the big things. Right? We don't, we don't always have to charge into battle and die on a hill. That, that's not necessarily what leadership and commitment and devotion is. Sometimes it's the small things. Dealing with people that we know, people in our own family, having to make those tough individual and intimate conversations and decisions, and that sometimes is more about leadership and commitment and character and God than the big things. Moving on to chapter 4, Israel is fighting the Philistines. They have two battles. They lose both. 34,000 soldiers are killed, we're told, in the two battles. 34,000 soldiers killed. The ark of God is lost. The Philistines capture it, carry it off. A messenger comes to Eli, who is now old, gives him the bad news. Eli falls out of his chair and dies. And guess what happened in those two battles? 
Both of his sons were killed on the same day. So the house of Eli is no more. So we skip ahead now into chapters 8 and following. Samuel's been leading Israel for a while. But he's starting to get old. And his sons, who are supposed to take over for him, guess what they're doing? They're not following the ways of their father. Sounds familiar if you're a parent. I see my son is still awake. Thank you, Nathan. <laughs> They're not following the ways of their father. Now, there's a differentiation here because we don't see God saying that he's going to cut off the house of Samuel. So I think the, the, difference, the difference we have to recognize is that while Samuel's sons are not doing what they are supposed to, they may be engaged with bribery and in their, their civilian judgeship, they're not doing what they're supposed to, Eli's sons were offending God, right? So they're both wrong. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to try to minimize one or the other. I'm just saying that there is a difference between the two. Eli's sons are offending God, in his, it was, as we saw earlier, and Samuel's sons are more civilian authority uh, problems that they have. All the same sin, it's just there's a difference there. So, of course, with Samuel getting older, the elders of Israel are, are like, hey, listen, we do not want your sons to rule over us, so give us a king like everybody else. And what does Samuel say? You already have a king. God is supposed to be your king. But they insist. Samuel goes to God. God, being the, the reasonable and all-knowing and having a plan for everything, says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Give them a king. Give them a king, but warn them. Give them a king, and we'll, we'll see what happens from there. So God picks a king. It's going to be Saul. And, of course, like is the, what we see all the time, the smallest tribe and the smallest clan, he picks somebody out of that. Not the most powerful with the most soldiers. He picks Saul, who, during his coronation, when he's going to be presented, is hiding in the baggage. Saul is actually starting off pretty well. He's going to follow, he's, he's going to follow God. He's going to listen to God. He's humble but that's going to change. He meets with some initial success. He, re, he rescues the city of Jabesh, and unfortunately, once he gets a taste of power, like many of us, things start to change. Right? He starts to have resources and power that he thinks he can use, that he knows best how to use, that he knows exactly what should be done. He doesn't necessarily need Samuel. Samuel's going to stick around and be his advisor. But Saul's king. And if the king says so, it makes it right. Of course, we're talking about God here. God is supposed to be Saul's king. He's supposed to be Israel's king. God's going to have his way, no matter what Saul says. He starts acting on his own, and he eventually is going to lose favor with God. Chapter 15. My heading says, 
the Lord rejects Saul as king. So Saul, he does a few things that he's not supposed to. A couple of highlights. He, he's supposed to destroy the Amalekites, kill them all, and, and all of the animals and all that, everything else he's supposed to do. But he doesn't. He keeps the king alive. He later puts him to death, but he keeps the king alive initially, and uh, he, he keeps some of the best of the animals. He's, he's doing it on his own. Some of the plunder they keep, they keep the best of it. And then he's supposed to wait for Samuel to, to show up, and he doesn't. So, so even though he's not a Levite and he's not supposed to make a sacrifice, he goes ahead and does it anyway. So he does those things, which to us are, you know, maybe you could get away with it, maybe not. I don't know. They're unusual for us today. But we look back and we see, okay, what does Saul do when he's confronted with what he should have done and he didn't? He blames others. Just like we do. Just like I do. Right? God says, you need to kill them all. Saul says, I followed the Lord. It was my soldiers who kept the king alive. I followed the Lord's direction. It was my soldiers who took the plunder that they weren't supposed to. He's trying to deflect. And everybody knows that if you're the king and you say, do this and do that, people will do this and do that. It's your responsibility, Saul. You're the leader. And when Samuel confronts him, he says, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You know, there was an emergency. You were supposed to be here to make this sacrifice. I had to do it. But he knows he's not a Levite, and he knows he's not supposed to do it. He did it anyway because his people were starting to fade away. They were losing confidence in him. I got to do something. It's an emergency. Does it sound familiar? There's an emergency. We got to do something. Maybe we can... Maybe we can do something that's not exactly what we should be doing because it's an emergency. All bets are off. Saul does the same thing. And I think in our lives we sort of do that same thing as well. Our tests of character and our tests of leadership come to us when we're not prepared or not expecting them. And guess what? We might forget what we're supposed to do. Chapter 15 ends. And it ends like this. Verse 34. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Man, talk about falling hard. You know, the thing is, we, sometimes we think, well, I just don't hear from God the same way that they did back in the Old Testament. And, you know, it, we look at Israel and we're like, come on, Israel. God is your king. You saw everything that he did. You've got this history. You, kn- you know what you're supposed to do. It's all written down right here. God is your king. And who do they turn to? They turn to Saul. They want to be just like everyone else. And I sometimes wonder today if we're not in a similar position, right? We're, not to get too far afield here, but what are we looking for? Israel had a king. We have a king. Jesus Christ is supposed to be our king. 
And it doesn't matter if we live under communism or socialism or democracy. God is, Jesus Christ is our king. And we spend an awful lot of time, in my view, thinking about things that don't relate to Jesus as our king. We can, we can want all, we can hope and we can pray that the Supreme Court will get the right decision in whatever case is coming up. In the next election, we can vote for one or the other. We can believe that if we don't vote for the right person, we're going to be subjected to all sorts of regulations that are nonsense and whatever. Democrats and Republicans, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, or whoever else is going to be up for president, they are not our king. Jesus Christ is supposed to be our king. In the same way that the Israelites asked for someone to come save them, I think sometimes we have a tendency to go that way too. And every moment we think about that, we're not thinking about the person sitting next to us in the seats today. That was Jesus' instruction to us. Our king's instruction was love God and love others. Everything else is secondary. All right, but as we close, I think just a, a, a brief moment to remember that this all belongs to God. It, every single part of it. And no matter what we think, no matter what we want, no matter how many, much research we do, or if you're, if you're masked or unmasked, if you're vaccinated or not, if you're red or blue, Republican or Democrat, we're supposed to love you. And that's what we should be doing. The greatest lesson that we ever have to know or learn is that God loves you, always has, and always will. So disperse and be the church.